Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, December the 1st, 2020, and this is episode 2783 of the Survival Podcast, but I'm not sure that's right. Let me check. That is, in fact, correct. It is uh, episode 2783 of the Survival Podcast today. And I know this for a fact, it is the first day of December 2020, which means a couple things are going on. Number one, we've got, if you count today, 21 days to the winter solstice. That's the longest night of the year. That's where the sun will pause in the sky for three days, apparently, anyway, and then raise one degree on December 25th. And that is uh, at least part of the reasons of the decision to celebrate Christmas on the 25th of September. Uh, and it's to me, I've always appreciated these, uh, these seasonal events as a way to understand kind of our place in time and the changing of the seasons. Uh, it's also the last month of the year of 2020, and that means that soon this horrible year will be over and we could flick it off like a bad booger, but it's going to be like where you, you get rid of one and there's still another one, I think. 2021 is going to have some real crap in it before we get through this crap that we're going through. Uh, but I do think that things will get better, and not so much because the government will back off or, or what have you, because I just have faith that people will say, I've had enough of this shit. I, I actually think 2021 is going to be a psychological thing for a lot of people. I really do. I think it's going to be a point where a lot of people who have been Not the brain-dead, I-obey-everything-sheep type. Those people, I don't think we can ever bring them back from where they are. Um, not through logic and reason, but when everybody goes back and then nothing happens that's uh, as bad as they claim, then maybe they'll wake up. I don't know. Well, I'm, and, I'm, and, and I'm not talking about waking up people like most of y'all, who are like, you know what, I'm going to go on and live my life. I know I'm going to because I think most of the people that are not in that that group of people they probably quit listening to me this year. They probably did. I I definitely picked up listeners this year. Uh, I definitely lost listeners this year because I'm anti-science or what have you. But I think there's a whole huge group of people. Let's call them a silent majority, not the silent majority, but a silent majority, who have people who have kind of been going along with this, with this this concept of but there's an end, but there's an end, but there's an end. And I think if they get to a point where they're like, oh, there is no end unless we end it. And I think going into 2021, it won't be that it won't be instantaneous. But I think as we begin to plod through, vaccines begin to be distributed. The most vulnerable get them first. They try start trying to make everybody do it, and everybody's like, "Screw you! I'm not doing it." But the people that want to do it do it, and they're going to get to a point where, like, it, you know, we'll be in April. Will you still need to wear a mask? People are going to be like, "Okay, it's enough." And I don't know where that is. I don't know, is that mid-January that people hit there? Is it April? I don't know. But I do think that we're beginning to see it already. We're watching police officers run out of businesses and establishments trying to enforce COVID shit. Like literally being harassed and chased out the door. The cracks in the dam are beginning. And that doesn't mean that the elite won't get what they want. They've already done so. We'll be talking about that and other things today. Starting off today, what are we going to talk about? 
How about an unintended consequence of COVID you likely never thought of? I never thought of this one. It's the reason people are dying. People are dying, and they're not dying of COVID. They're dying because of COVID. Flat out dying when somebody's sitting there and could save their life but's not allowed to. I'm dead serious. You'll hear it. I'm not going to explain it. I'll wait till I play the call. Next up, how a disaster and a resulting quote-unquote swap meet taught a lesson in prepping of guns, cryptocurrency, and taxes. We'll have that segment. How to think about and find resources for counter-economics and why what this guy's asking for in of itself probably doesn't really exist. It does, but it doesn't. It'll make sense when I explain it. Why finished biltong could go moldy and how to prevent that. How to find a good CPA and why it really should not be that hard to do so. And yes, the Great Reset is real. It is not a foil hat conspiracy. But at the same time, it's also a bit of both. And we'll talk about that. And that's not really about the conspiracy theorists this time. It's just something that conspiracy theorists always seem to do. People that believe all the conspiracies, there's one thing that all of them have in common across all the conspiracies, and I think it's a flaw in thinking, even when they're right. And in this case, they're right. The Great Reset is real. You know how we know it's real? It's on the cover of Time Magazine. That would be one way we know that's real. World Economic Forum said, hey, we're calling it the Great Reset. Um, they've put out promotions and materials and things saying, this is what we're doing, and we're doing it whether you like it or not. But in this call you'll hear where people tend to assign something that I don't think maybe they should be, even when they're right, when they're looking at things from a conspiracy theorist lens. All of that more in just a bit before we get there. Let's start off with a quote of the day. This quote might even seem counter to prepping, which wouldn't make a lot of sense, but that would be because it's often misunderstood. Lao Tzu once said, A good traveler has no fixed plans and is not intent on arriving. Now, of course, like anything else that came from this source, this is far bigger than the thing that it's about. It is a broad uh, comment on life in general that can be interpreted for many situations to aid you in how to think about things. That's the wisdom here. But let's take it if it was absolutely concrete on traveling. That's all that it was about. It wasn't meant to teach a larger lesson. And plans. Said, well, we plan, Jack. We, we plan for things. That's prepping. So we have to have plans. A good traveler has no fixed plans. Did not say a good traveler has no plans. No fixed plans. That means that the plans of the traveler are a general agenda of what I would like to do and see, but as the situation changes, I shall stay fluid like water. I will stay able to flex like the willow in the wind. Okay, And is not intent upon arriving. I have a destination in mind, but if a better destination comes up, I will go there instead. You understand that now. Now, now it takes it a little bit different, doesn't it? A good traveler has no fixed plans and is not intent on arriving. Now let's transcribe this to your life. You should have no fixed plans in your life. Fixed plans in your life. And should not be intent at arriving in a preconceived point of where you should be. Because as life throws curves at you, you can move with, around, and into those curves as makes the best sense for your life. 
and continue to adjust so that you never actually arrive. You only continue the journey. I picked that because we are going to bookend today's show with a, a call about the Great Reset. I cannot give you a better way to think about handling the Great Reset than to have no fixed plans and not be intent upon arrival. Because as I've talked about before, the way these megatrends are coming in the world today, and that's what this is. This is a, the power elite harvest, harnessing megatrends and combining it with their own individual goals and their beliefs, this God complex they have. And because it's not because they alone. It's because so much of it is megatrends of society and megatrends in the world. And then combined with the power of the elite and the overriding power of government, the state, the oligarchy, the technocracy, all of it together, it is like a giant millstone rolling around on another millstone. And if your intent then as something the size of a housefly down in this millstone, as this giant Clydesdale turns it around and around and around, is to go up and stop it, you're going to get squished. In the words of Mr. Miyagi, squish, just like grape, right? However, if you understand that that millstone must operate under certain principles, not only can you survive, but you can thrive while other people get squished, or other people simply get maimed or hurt, because you understand the rules. But the rules will change, and therefore you must have no fixed plans and not be intent on arrival. All right, hopefully that helps you think about this. As we go into our first call of the day, the unintended consequence of COVID that many of you have probably never thought of, and I wonder how many people it's actually killed. Here you go. Hi, Jack. Ian from Southeast Michigan. Um, I have a quick comment regarding uh, COVID-related unintended consequences. Um, a lot of the uh, EMTs and paramedics around here have been barred since the initial outbreak from intubating patients. So uh, I know firsthand of several patients who have passed away by the time they've reached the hospital uh, just due to the fact that, that it couldn't be intubated from a non-COVID-related uh, illness or injury. So uh, again, just a quick comment. Thanks for all you do. So um, I did this segment, and I decided to come back and put this at the intro of it. Toward the end of it, I get really pissed off, and I use the F word about four or five times. So you might want to skip this segment if you can't handle hearing a word. I don't know. Anyway, I just felt obligated to let you know because while I do curse on TSP, I generally don't use that word unless it's called for. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't think it's called for here, again, what I ask you to do at the end of this is check your pulse. So uh, I... I I get the logic in this, that if we intubate somebody in the back of an ambulance who's going to die, we open an airway, and that airway then spews out more uh, exhalation, that we put the people in the ambulance at greater risk of contracting and spreading COVID. This is stupid. This is stupid. If COVID is... is uh, as contagious as they claim, the person that's dealing with this individual in the back of an ambulance has already been exposed. Um, you're literally letting a person die because somebody else might get sick with something that, for most people, is akin to the cold. Now, that doesn't mean that it is for all people. I'm, I, I'm so sick of you people. I'm just done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with you morons that think stating a fact equals saying that the other part of the fact is not there. 
that's stating that for 90% or more of people that get COVID, it's like having the cold, maybe a little bit of the flu, or they don't even know it. That doesn't mean that there's not maybe 10% of people that really struggle and maybe a fraction of a percent of people who will even die from it. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. But in general, when you're talking about people who are EMTs in the back of an ambulance, you're talking about relatively healthy people. And if you're going to say, well, that person had COVID, so they're exposed, so then they can't be out there helping other people. Well, that's true whether that person was intubated or not. This is asinine. You're literally taking a person who has the medical training necessary, looking at a person and saying, I can make this person not die right now, and you're requiring them to let them die because somebody might get a virus, maybe. And the most, the most likely thing is they won't transmit a virus because most people don't have it. We, we, we're, and this is like a metaphor for life here, like what they, we've done with this. We treat everybody as though they're infected at all times, including people who've already had it and are immune to it and can't possibly have it again. I mean... So, here's my bigger thing. I'm a thinker. I've tried to think about all the reasons to oppose these lockdowns beyond the fact that you shouldn't infringe on human rights regardless of whether there's a virus around or not. Okay? And I, I, I think I've done a pretty good job with it. This never even occurred to me. I never even thought about this. And why does the legacy media, and that's what they call them, don't call them mainstream media, call them legacy media, they're old news, okay? Why does legacy media not talk about this if they care about life? Because they don't care about life, they care about their agenda. We are letting people die who do not have to die because of fear. That's how, And that is everything here. How many people's lives have been destroyed to the point where they put a gun to their head or a bottle of pills down their throat or a noose around their neck and we don't give a flying... I'm sorry, we don't give a fuck about those people as a society today, do we? We don't. I know you and I do, but as a society, as what the majority have chose to comply with and accept, we can't claim that we're worried about life because we don't give a fuck about the person that dies because their business was destroyed. We don't give a fuck about the person that dies in the back of an ambulance because they can't be intubated by the person with the skills to do so because of fucking fear. And I know some of you don't like that word, but you know what? Right here, it's called for. And if you don't feel that outrage, check your fucking pulse. Let's go on to something else before I snap a gasket. Hello, Jack. This is Bravo Whiskey calling with a field report from the fires in southern Oregon. Thanks to the preparations that I put into place as a result of listening to your show for quite some time, my own evacuation went pretty much flawlessly. I was prepared for just about every eventuality and out on the road when I realized, well, A, bugging out's rarely a good idea, and B, I didn't need to do it. My place was going to be fine. So when I got back and started a work week, full of listening to people's heart-wrenching stories of loss. By the time the weekend came, I was a bundle of nerves, had no idea what to do with myself. Thankfully, a friend of mine suggested that I join 
what had become essentially an anarchist swap meet in the parking lot of a nearby Walmart. And I went there, not knowing what to do, walked up to the first person who seemed to know what they were doing and asked them, being a, effectively an anarchist swap meet, they had no idea either. So I asked myself, self, what can you do? And what I could do was, thanks to, again, those preparations, use the Schumacher full-size 1,200-watt uh, battery jump pack, which, by the way, is a product I'm really surprised I've never heard you discuss, to charge multiple people's phones at one time. I immediately ran home, grabbed every charging cable I owned, came back, and set to work for the following about 18 hours, calling out to anyone who looked like they might need their phone charged and offered them my assistance in doing so. So that call actually went on for about another 30 to 40 seconds, except the way you heard it drop off is the way I heard it drop off. Um, using the speak pipe, I'm guessing that a microphone cable got kicked or something, and I, so I don't know what the rest of this story is, which kind of bugs me because I kind of want to hear the rest of it, but I, I get the gist of it, and I wanted to come at this from a standpoint of a few things. One is that the fact that this was, he describes it as a swap meet, but what it really was was a group of people who had some things but not everything they needed or wanted relying on each other for resources during a time of failure. So instead of relying on the government, they relied on a market. That's awesome. And it shows you that we should be putting systems in place to do this in advance of failure. This is one of the plans that we don't have to have as a fixed plan or an intent upon arrival plan. And I think that's one of the places people get tripped up with this type of thing is they want to like have everything be something you could print in a book and say, if you do these things, you're finished. And, and that's really not the way you have to approach something like this. This is a form of counter-economics, which we'll be talking about more today. But if we already had, let's see, that plan was kind of like impromptu. It just like people started showing up. Hey, there's some people there. I'll go there too. And maybe we can help each other out. Right. I guess that's, that's what I got out of it. Again, I might have missed some of this because the, the call got cut off like that. Um, and again, it was like 45 seconds of dead silence. So I don't I really know what he was saying. He probably doesn't know what happened until he leaves the show today. Um, but imagine if, in advance of this, there had been a core group that had been told, hey, if shit hits the fan here, fire, earthquake, whatever, what we're going to do, we're going to set up here, and we're going to work to help people get their shit back together and trade value for value in doing so. We're not going to necessarily be 100% charity, but maybe we will where necessary. We'll do that case by case, but we're going to be... Now, people would say that's profiteering and profiting off of the pain of others or whatever, but often a person who doesn't have a home to go to is not so concerned with, hey, i got to pay for this. It's, hey, I can't get this. And and charging for something is is one way to ration a thing that is finite in its it, its its availability. And the more resiliency you can build like this into local areas, the more autonomy and sovereignty and stability they have and less dependence on government. This is why government hates it. Government wants, when there is a, a tragedy, for us to rely on government. They want us to need them. They want us to need them because then they have all these places and they say, see, without us, you're screwed, you're screwed, you're screwed, you're screwed, you need us. 
When in, in reality, in, in many instances, with private insurance and relying on neighbors, we can get through a lot of things that we think we need government for, not just disasters. The other thing I thought that was interesting here is, essentially, what he provided was a service. Now, whether he did it for free or whether he did it for a small fee or whatever, I don't know. This is the kind of thing I would be kind of intent on doing for free, but I don't know if, if, if someone wanted to... You know, that had a lot of water bottles and wanted to give me a bottle of water to charge their phone. I might not need that bottle of water, but now I have a bottle of water I can give to somebody else who might need it. And that's how commerce then propagates itself. So that I thought was interesting too. Now on the Schumacher charger, I, I did look it up. I have it in the show notes today. Um, this is a jump starter pack. So basically it's a battery in a plastic box with some bells and whistles around it. As things go though. Schumacher is my go-to for battery chargers. They're intelligent chargers, and the same charger intelligence that's built into their battery chargers is built into this jump starter. So the charger, we're going to go to batteries, and you have intelligence in charging the battery out. They have that now same intelligence built into this charging inward so that we don't like destroy our battery faster. Because using a battery eventually destroys it. Okay. Um, if you want a jump pack... The one he mentioned, the 1200 amp, not 1200 watt, 1200 amp, is probably the best thing on the market like this. And what I like about packs like this is I can take this pack, and you have a great big pickup truck, and it won't start, and it's somewhere that I can't drive my truck to to get my battery cables on it because of where you're parked or where you're stuck or whatever, and I can take this over there and put it on there, and boom, it starts up. Also, if I'm by myself, and I'm the one with that problem, I have that. Now, I have other redundancies, and I'm bigger on, if you want portable power, something more akin to, you know, we get some 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 tough totes or Rubbermaid totes or something that are on wheels. We put a couple lead-acid batteries in there, and we use a Schumacher charger to keep that charged up, maybe even throw a solar panel on it, and we've got a much greater reserve of power. But there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with what he did. Um, but with my truck having a battery bank in the toolbox in the back and a long set of power uh, cables, uh, jumper cables, I can literally use my battery bank to jump my truck and my truck to charge my battery bank. So uh, this has been less of a concern for me. And with our uh, other vehicles being brand new, we generally keep good batteries in them. Um, but this is probably something that... I have basically the smaller, quick jump start packs that we keep in the, the smaller vehicles. This is probably not a bad thing for me to add. Uh, we've had Sean Mills talk on this before, and with a cursory look at this product, it's probably about one of the best you can get like it on the market today. So it is in the show notes today, and it gets 1,200 amps of starting power, not 1,200 watts of power. Uh, let's take another one. This one is going to be on guns, crypto, and taxes. That sounds like a, re, uh, a restatement of a Warren Zevon song. Hey, Jack. Been doing the uh, counter-economic thing. Started a business, a sole proprietorship. And uh, I've been building AR-15s for people um, out of parts. And, of course, they're supplying the lowers, you know. But... I was wondering if they paid me in cryptocurrency, could I take that cryptocurrency, then buy gold or silver with it, and avoid taxes, 
And then, I don't know, can you cash that gold and silver out back into cash eventually when you want to spend it on something and not pay taxes on it? Just curious. Not sure how that works. Thank you. So this is going to sound weird at first to where I'm taking this. One of my uh, mentors I've never met long since passed away is a guy named Carl Caulfield. And uh, it was mentorship in the world of herpetology, specifically snakes and, and reptiles. And Carl is one of the fathers of modern uh, herpetology in the United States, both at the professional level but much more at the amateur level. And as a young kid, a long time ago, because I'm old now, I read these books that were already very, very old, written by Carl, Carl Caulfield. And one was called The Keeper and the Kept. And I would still say it is one of the the fundamental best books for people that want to partake in herping out in the wild um, that there is uh, available, even though it was written, I believe, in the 30s, if I remember correctly. And I believe it's available in reprints. Anyway... In this book, at one point, he switches to a chapter on capturing and handling hots, which if you can't derive that for yourself in the world of herpetology, are snakes that if they bite you, you get envenomated and you can get really sick or injured or die. And he professes this with, you, since you're an am he knows that this book is written for amateurs because he wrote it. Right. This is not, this book was not written for people running a herpetology, uh, area within a zoo or a biologist at a research station. This book was written for kids and, and teenagers and young people like I was at the time that want to go trekking through the backwoods of Pennsylvania where they might come across things like timber rattlers and copperheads. And if you're where snakes are in Pennsylvania sooner or later, you will come across those critters. And he says this, from the beginning with what you should do is not do this. Okay? But since some of you are going to do it anyway, I'm going to tell you how you can do it, and if you actually do what I say, not get bit ever. And he proceeds to then discuss how to use things like hooks, clamps, and bags, and how there is literally never any reason under any circumstances for anybody that is an amateur who wants to do this thing to ever physically touch a venomous snake. That they can be captured, transported, removed from enclosures, and then put into holding enclosures while those enclosures are cleaned, and then put back in and fed, and all done so in a way that there's no reason you would ever get bit because you will never be close enough to the critter to get bit. And if you don't do it, odds are you're going to get bit. He then tells a story of how he, as a professional, after years of not being bit, got himself bit performing a veterinary function on a cobra and almost died. And then he goes through how to do this. All right? That's a bit long of an intro, but boy, I want to be clear what I'm saying here. Okay? So I'm not saying here's how to cheat on your taxes. I'm saying if you're going to cheat on your taxes with crypto, here's some things to think about. All right, And I can't even give you as much assurance that it won't burn you in the ass that Carl could because if you did what he said with snakes, you really would not get bit, at least with our hots in the United States because none of them have the reach and lungeability or speed necessary to overcome his methodology. All right, so let's start off with side hustle, building, guns, 
on owner-owned lowers. Nothing illegal about that that I know of. Now, if you're taking possession of the lower, then my understanding would be you need an FFL. And you probably have one if you are an established, you know, you're up saying, I am a sole proprietorship. You're declaring yourself DBA or something like that. So that, I'm, I'm assuming that whatever you need to do to be legal in manufacturing firearms in the United States, you are legal. However that needs to be, and that means that we're going to take the income from the activity and separate it from the question. I don't care if you're getting Bitcoin or Litecoin or R or ARK or any cryptocurrency whatsoever for building guns or because people really think you have a cute butt and you post pictures of your butt. Okay? It doesn't really matter as long as the fundamental underlying activity is legal. And even if it's illegal, what you're asking me about is income and trying to get that income into cash without declaring it nor paying taxes on it. All right. So the first thing I would say is we need to evaluate this and see something in of itself. Are you profitable on paper? Not in reality, but on paper. Is there enough deductions, enough things in your life that you can move into your business and structure as legitimate deductions that you can dispose of most of or all of the income. And most of would be pretty good. Okay? Most of would be good. And we can do, we can actually not make money for about five years before we get classified as a hobby. Alright? So, if we can do that, then we shouldn't do any of this risk because risk and reward are always judged against each other. So unless we're talking about a significant amount of money that the government doesn't get that we get to keep, We don't even need to play this game. And whether we accept it as cryptocurrency or cash, doesn't really matter. All right. Now, the other thing I'm hearing you say is you're not so concerned with them knowing that you took the cryptocurrency. And if you do that right, hooks, clamps, bags, at a distance, never touching the snake, you can pretty much rest assured that will be the case. You're saying, how do I now get this crypto-magiggle money out of the crypto-magiggle money into U.S. space credits in the form of U.S. dollars? so that I can then spend it to do things like buy more tooling and shit for my business. Well, again, all of the expenses against your business, replacement of parts, etc., is legitimate expenses within your business, and there would be no reason to hide that portion of the snake coming into the bag. Yeah? Okay? All right, so... When we need, like, we're going to report you, if you're declaring yourself a, a, a sole proprietorship, you have said, here I am, I'm doing this business, I'm taking money in, there's a certain amount of money you want to report, you know, up until, and maybe a little over, it's profitable. Small profit is still a profit, and now we can write off all these other things that we normally wouldn't be able to write off. That's the CPA question we'll save for later, because i got a question on CPAs later, okay? So, be careful... You're not doing this just to spite them, and you're going to get yourself hurt, bit, by the snake. Because you didn't do it right. All right. Now, let's talk about how we get the money in a way that it's completely untraceable. The only way to do that is the person who's paying you needs to be paying you in a privacy coin, i.e. Ghost, Monero, R, which is pirate chain, right? Something like that. So if you have people willing to pay you in crypto, I would request that they pay you in privacy coin which seems like a smart thing in your line of work anyway. 
Now I have received the money. They can't see that I received the money because they don't know who got it. They don't know who spent it. They might know that Bill bought Bitcoin and turned it into, because they could check on an exchange maybe, uh, a pirate chain, but they don't know where it went, and they don't know who he sent it to, and they don't know who got it, and they don't know how much there is, and they don't know shit, because everything's hidden and encrypted. And now you have invisible money, truly invisible money, which Bitcoin is not. So now, if you really want to not have to go through the process of turning it into cash, you should see, are there things that you want to buy that you can buy with your invisible money? So some portion of all money received should be saved, right? That's a reserve. And some portion then pays for expenses in your life. So if we can find enough expenses to you, because I'm assuming this is not massive amounts of money here on a, on a kind of hobby-scale business like this, side hustle, right? So then if we can spend the R or Ghost or Monero on things that we needed to buy anyway with people who will take that, that directly that way, then the money we need to pay the electric bill can come out of our normal space credit money. You see? And then that way there is no conversion to cash because when we convert to cash or when we convert from one crypto to another or when we receive crypto, all of those by the government are considered taxable events. And all of them should be reported, should be, like Dr. Evil. Okay? So you have to think about all this, but before you do any of it to be subversive, right, And I think we could use, and basically it's, it's a form of economic sedition. And I'm in agreement with Jeff Lawton that we could use a little more sedition in the world today since the state acts as our enemy at all times. But is it beneficial enough to risk the, the penalty for being caught? Is it valuable enough? Is whatever you're trying to do enough? that you're actually going to touch the snake because you want to milk the snake's venom. It's kind of what you're doing when you're in this world. You're already in a place where you're kind of maybe a little more looked at than normal because you're touching guns. But there are ways to do this that are pretty damn safe. But I would start with, you need a privacy coin that is a always private privacy coin. Because my problem with currencies like Dash is since it's privacy when you want it, you're relying on the other party to do what they're supposed to do for that to happen. Whereas when you have a Monero or you have an R, you have a privacy by default. And that's what I would want to come into. Now, your question basically is, well, can I use it to buy gold and then sell the gold and then not pay taxes? Well, that's pretty laborious. And I think what you're trying to do is you're trying to fit into that area where you can sell a certain amount of, especially in certain forms, American Silver Eagles, a certain amount of those every year without paying any taxes on them. And certainly if you bought them and sold them, and see, now you're going to lose money, though, because whatever you pay for a Silver Eagle, when you sell it, you're not going to get what you paid for it unless silver happened to go up in the interim. And then there's a limit to how many you see. To me, this is very, very complicated. We're trying to use an outdated form of currency in precious metals, which is a good store of value reserve, but not a great form of currency 
to enable us to go from a superior form of currency to what I consider an inferior form of currency and going from crypto to U.S. dollars. I have invisible money that can't be seized or touched, and I want to go into dollars, and I only want to do that. I understand why you want to do that, because you need to buy things. You need to pay for things. So first, can you pay for some of the things you need with crypto in the form that it's received? And that would be the first place to check. And then, how do I do... Now, so the only other way I know to do this is, how are you planning on buying this gold or silver? Now, if you have a friend who sells silver eagles for crypto, that actually sounds pretty cool. All right? That sounds pretty cool. And maybe I would do that. If you're going to buy it, I guess there's some cryptos, there's some uh, PM sites that take precious metals. Do any of them take privacy coins? That would be... Now, then again, I'm starting to get more interested in your, your analogy here, but I'm thinking most of them are going to be taking you know, Bitcoin, Litecoin, etc. through standard processors who they are taking Bitcoin, but they're not getting Bitcoin. They're getting dollars. You see, and, and that, if it's Bitcoin, if it's Litecoin at all, that's all public ledger. If you're buying a crypto credit card and then spending it as dollars, that's there as well. It's It's... Not real easy for them to find at the minute level. If you ever looked at, that's a different thing. But the way to do business that essentially is I am touching the poisonous snake, the venomous snake. I said my own faux pas there, right? I am dealing with this, this timber rattler, but I am dealing with it with a six-foot-long pole with a clamp on the end of it and, a, and, a, and a, a hinge clamp on my end where I can actuate that, a hook with a, a net bag around that hook to where I can maneuver that snake in there and then twist that up and that snake can't get out of that bag and it can't bite me because it's six foot away from me. If you want to do that that way, then privacy coin in, privacy coin out. And that is the economy I believe we are moving to with crypto. So I know that was a long one. But the first thing, like I said, separate the, the, the action that's causing the revenue from the question. Because, again, it doesn't matter if people think you have a cute butt and they're giving you tips on Instagram because your cute butt photos are there or you're building guns. The government doesn't give a flying crap, as long as the act underlying activity is legal, how the money came in, they care that the money came in. But the other side of that is what are the expenses against the revenue? And to me, let's say that you have an enterprise that's making you $20,000 in revenue a year as a side hustle. That's pretty sizable. And you can write up about $16,000 in expenses against it. What I would probably do is see if I can finagle it to where I take enough crypto and privacy coin that those numbers get closer to each other. And if I'm a thousand bucks over, just pay tax on a thousand dollars. That's, that's probably what I would do because the value of that business as an entity may, ex it, it, I'll just say last thing before I move on. There was a guy. In Pennsylvania, this a good friend of my dad's, he ran an ice cream shop. Paid taxes on all the money from the ice cream. Did a lot of other business in cash. Sold used cars out the back, etc. And, uh, but paid all his taxes on his ice cream. And I'm not using an analogy. 
True story. Let's take another one. This one is on counter-economics. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, we just did that one. This one is on something. No, actually, this one's on counter-economics. Hey, I was listening to 2731 today, your Liberty by Design podcast, the 18 things you can do. I really liked what you said about the uh, counter-economy, kind of off-the-grid economic uh, off-the-grid capitalism, I guess you would call it, maybe. I was wondering, do you have or know of any resources that a person might be able to look into to get some kind of ideas and inspiration for that kind of thing? That'd be awesome. Thanks. Love the show. Uh, on one hand, there's tons of resources, and on another hand, there's really not, depending on what you mean by that. I mean, I would look at the work that we do with our weekly podcast with Unloose the Goose and it is something that largely discusses how you can participate in counter-economics. Um, I would definitely say uh, Sal Mayweather, who's part of the uh, Unloose the Goose crew, uh, his podcast called The Agora uh, would be a great a great resource there. Vin Armani has a publication called Counter Markets. It's fairly expensive for an annual subscription, but it's excellent, and it gives you a lot of ideas and a lot of analysis of markets in general, not just from a counter-economic standpoint, uh, places where things will grow, etc. However, if this makes me think another analogy a lot like when I was first getting involved in Internet marketing back in the mid-'90s. And I was part of a company that had tons and tons of affiliate marketers. And they had a pretty good system of training, which eventually I got to the point where I was writing like training manuals for the agents and, and what have you. But when I was learning, I remember thinking to myself, why won't you just tell me what to put on my flipping web page so it will rank in Ash Jeeves? That's how long ago this is. Okay? And what I realized was, so if everybody does the same thing, it stops working. So there's a principle that we operate under, and then our unique creativity is what enables us to be successful in a competitive marketplace. So if everybody just cut and pasted this, because this is back when, you know, if you know anything about search engine optimization, this is back when meta tags, description tags, and title tags worked really good. There weren't that many websites to compete with. And if you had a certain word count to keyword ratio and a few little anchors and stuff like that on a page, you could own the hell out of the first search engines. I know because I did it. And it even worked with like Google and Yahoo for a long time after that to a degree. And it moved more and more toward off-site factors, which are harder to manipulate, i.e. links. Um, but... When we look at counter-economics, it's, 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 it's a lot the same way. If you, you tell somebody exactly what you're doing and say, go do this too, and you flood that sector, you have an issue. The other thing is anybody engaged in true counter-economic activity has to run a balance between, hey, I'm over here and willing to do business, and hey, I ain't doing shit. Right? So getting into groups where you can partake in counter-economics is a little more guarded than getting into a group that wants to share cat pictures. But let me give you an example of counter-economics. I've told a story often of a guy named Buddy Shoemaker. Buddy Shoemaker was a winemaker in rural Pennsylvania. If you asked him what a counter-economic was, he would have said, huh? I mean, literally, that's how he would have said it, too. He was a cool guy, and I, I can remember his voice. Huh? What are you talking about? That's what he would have said. Counter, what are you talking? He's a master of it. 
And the basic story for people that haven't heard this before, this dude was literally the guy that is in the song by David Lee Murphy, Dust on the Bottle. Right? Cleo Wilson. Buddy Shoemaker was Cleo Wilson. And he made wine, fantastic wines, for table wines made from various things. My grandfather had a huge Concord grapevine, and I would take a big bag of grapes up to Buddy. And, and Buddy would then take those grapes and make wine. And he'd get, you know, five gallons of wine. And about two and a half gallons of wine would come back to the old man. He'd keep two and a half gallons of it. He's a very giving man. One time he handed my grandfather a bottle, you know, like a standard wine size bottle, of wine that was seven years old. And he said, I know you, Biff. You would have never kept it this long. This is when your wine peaks. And I'll have a bottle of this for you every year for as long as I'm around or you're around. I'll put one back every year for you because I know you won't do it for yourself. Now, he had social capital out the ass. And you might just think, but he got a bunch of free wine for making it. You can't drink. If Buddy drank as much wine as he got to keep, okay, he'd have been dead. His liver would have quit in the first five years of this enterprise. So, if Buddy needed something, he'd ask you, you take some wine for that. What kind of wine you like? You ever try parsley wine? That's a thing. Let me show you. About dandelion wine. You want to try that? And he might find a way to do business with you for wine. And if you say, hey, buddy, um, you know, I uh, put that carburetor on your car there for that dandelion wine. That was, that was pretty good. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know if you need another carburetor job, though, but I, I, I'd like some more of that. Dandelion wine. Buddy would be like, well, what you got? And that person might be like, I, I don't know. What do you need? And they go him and haw about it. And You got money? Because everybody likes money. So a lot of that wine got bartered, but some of the barter was for dollars. Now, I don't know how in the hell Ira Ramon Sancia, a.k.a. IRS, could have ever gotten Buddy Shoemaker on this. I mean, anything that was money was cash. It was all barter. Sure, it should have all been. It was, a, you know, it was a gray market activity in that making wine in your own home is legal, but selling it and trading it is not. But I can damn sure tell you that no one was going to go bust Buddy Shoemaker. And that is how you have to think about this. How do you do something that's in front of everybody but nobody sees as being wrong so that you can build and, and you know if somebody would have called him up and said hey you buddy shoemaker well yeah speaking I heard you sell wine I'm sorry I don't do that click see this is how you have to start thinking about this stuff let's take another one this one on moldy biltong hi Jack this is Eli Sheva from Jerusalem. Why did my biltong mold? Details. I made biltong according to, to your method. I love the baby arm thickness. Made me think of my babies. Uh, with the coriander, the black pepper, the salt, they hung beautifully. They cured beautifully. I put them in an airtight container in the refrigerator and they molded. You said you could freeze them or put them in an airtight container in the closet. I wasn't sure. Maybe it was the refrigerator that did it. 
Even so, we loved it, and I want to make sure I get it right before I make another batch. Thank you for all you do. All the best. All right, this is one of those questions as an example of you've got to listen to the whole question before you can give an accurate answer. Because when you start talking about moldy biltong, I thought you had a problem that many people tend to have in humid climates where biltong will mold during the curing process. This does happen, and in that case, there's a couple remedies. One is just simply a fan blowing across it. The other is make it in an air-conditioned room uh, or in the dry season in the wintertime in, in, inside. Uh, that's kind of the best because there's less flies around, and if you use enough salt, pepper, and coriander, flies won't get on your biltong and ruin it, but it can happen, and it has happened to me where flies ruined a batch of biltong one time. So that's, that's something that can happen. So we've got to make sure that we're addressing that. Uh, but one way that we can do that. And if all else fails, even though I say you don't need it, a biltong box, which is basically a box that air can kind of move through with things to hang your biltong from with like a light bulb in it, that light bulb is not there to provide heat. It's there to provide enough heat to create a dry environment. I find, while I don't think you need a biltong box, I find a biltong box to be a much better solution okay, than a dehydrator. Because the problem with dehydrators is they end up drying the outside of the biltong really, really fast and creating an over-dried product, in my opinion. You don't get a cured product. Uh, you get more of a straight-dried product. And so what happens is if you make biltong right, even though it might feel really tough, it's light for its size. And when we If we were to cut it across the, 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 the long dimension, it kind of resembles prosciutto. It shouldn't be dry all the way through. It should have that glossy cured look, and I like mine to have a little bit of red left in it. This is why, because we don't have to, but this is why we want to put it in an airtight container. It's not so it doesn't go bad. We do this so it stops drying and remains at a state of cure. The best way to do this is in a not only airtight, but make sure that we're doing it with some level of temperatures that are stable. And you might think a refrigerator does that. But this is what happens when you put it in a refrigerator. Okay? You put it in a jar, you close it up, put it in a refrigerator. And whatever the humidity was in the air is now in the jar. And when we chill it, what happens when we do that? What happens when we take glasses from a warm environment into a cold environment or the other way around? You get condensation. So all the moisture that was in the air as the jar cooled down settled on the outside of the biltong, probably molded the outside of the biltong. And probably you were able to just cut it off and eat it, kind of like you would do with cheese, and, and that's fine. Okay? If you're going to refrigerate it, it's probably better that you either do it like in a paper bag or something like that and just not let it dry out further, or that you take something like a Ziploc bag, put it in that, and squeeze as much of the air out as possible. Now, I know what you're thinking. I'll vacuum seal it. I'm leery of this. I'm leery of this because there is some moisture, and even though the salt is high, I'm leery of the potential, and I don't know that it's very high, but the potential for botulism if we go air 
completely sealed, low-oxygen environment. I don't think it's probable, but I'm leery of it. How I store my biltong is in a plastic bag. Usually I go ahead and refrigerate it, but I push the air out of it. I've never had it mold. Some things that maybe make it more likely that it mold, maybe you went a little bit light on your salt, a little bit light on the vinegar drench. Those two things do a lot to help prevent mold as well. But what it sounds like happened is you probably had a fairly humid environment, so then you had a humid environment in your jar. You put it in your jar, you put your lid on it, you stuck it in the refrigerator, you created condensation. That condensation uh, can, you know, fell onto the biltong, created an outside wet environment. So we want some dampness inside, but we want the outside dry. We didn't get that, so we got some mold. And uh, so making those adjustments will probably end that being a problem for you. This is thing I've heard of happening. I've never had moldy biltong. This never happened to me. Um, the, the way you can just not worry about this anymore is freeze it. And I find that to be beneficial. And the reason that I find it to be beneficial is it makes me eat it slower. So if I, if I, uh, if I put biltong in a, a Ziploc bag in the refrigerator, I, I promise you it's not going to mold. Because I'm going to keep eating it until there isn't anymore. So in the freezer, it's out of sight, out of mind. So uh, in the freezer, I would have no problem vacuum sealing it. And that would be your, your number one way. So go down into, this is how much I want to grub on at once. Throw it on the vacuum sealer, vacuum sealer, throw it in the freezer. And you will never have a problem if you do it that way. Uh, with that, let's take another one. And if somebody knows the biochemistry here and can tell me, Jack, you can vacuum seal that shit and you don't worry about um, botulism, let me know. I just, when you talk to an audience this large, you get really guarded with your words. And even if you think you're right, if it's something that can make people sick or hurt people, you hedge. And that's what I'm doing here. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. My name's Chris. I've uh, been listening to your podcast for a few weeks now and really enjoying it. It's helping me think differently about life. I've always been kind of survival-oriented, um, just never had the time to put into living it the way I'd like to. Anyways, that being said, I own a painting company, and... You know, I hear you talk about your business and how you run tax deductions and things like that. And to be honest, that's part of the business I've never been that great at and don't have a specific person lined up to kind of talk me through those. I know you said that your tax lady um, does a really good job for you. I didn't know if she was interested in working for uh, other businesses and if she did it. You know, if it had to be in your area in Texas or if possibly she would be willing to take work on in other states. So let me know. Uh, I live in the Kansas City, Missouri area, and I'm looking for a good tax lady. Keep up, keep up the great work. Thanks, man. Bye. Okay, so I think sometimes when I talk about my accountant, people think that I was like this genius that – you know, went through a thousand accountants and interviewed them all and found this lady. And I really didn't. My original accountant was a gentleman named Richard. And he was my guy that was a CPA and a tax attorney. And he was fantastic. And the lady that I have now uh, is named Mary. And she was basically his Luke Skywalker and he was Yoda. And he trained her all the way through. But I actually have them through H&R Block. 
And the way that I ended up with them is back when I first started really venturing out on my own, instead of just doing my own taxes, I was like, it's time to get some help. So we went to an HR block location that happened to be near our home. And I had some pretty creative ideas. And I'm sitting there talking to kind of one of their, you know, pasty, regular, everyday person that fills out a 1040 for you uh, because you don't know how to do it for yourself and you want a rapid refund. And he was running that office, and he heard me. And he said, I want to take care of this. And we formed a relationship. And once I have something that works, I don't go elsewhere. So I used him up until a couple years ago when he retired. By then, he had already handed me off to Mary Johnson. And while that couple, that was like two years of that where he was there, She did everything. He kind of would confer with her, and they'd see if they could do anything better. And now he's retired, and no dollar taking people. So Mary, I don't think, would be taking you as a client from another state or something like that. I don't think most CPAs would. You want somebody locally you can sit down with and talk to, at least in the beginning. Uh, this last year, Mary did everything remotely because COVID. But at this point, I had enough confidence that I was more than happy to have her do it. We kind of have a pattern now. We know what we're doing with all the things that were going on. This should not actually be that hard. All you need is a motivated CPA. Especially most of you that are asking me these questions, you don't have a business where you're doing a quarter million dollars of turnover a year, right? You have a side hustle that creates a few deduction opportunities and maybe you're doing $10,000, $30,000 in revenue. You, you're going to be fundamentally limited in what you can do with that. But the things that you really want to do is you want to do enough research to know I qualify for a home office deduction. And then it, if you were going to interview a couple different CPAs, you would just say, okay, look, here's all the information I have on home office deductions. Here's the square footage of my house. Here's what I pay in my mortgage and my, uh, you know, on, on taxes and utilities and everything else. How would you calculate this? And you'll probably find that most of them will do a fairly basic calculation based on the way things were a couple of years ago when the SALT deductions and all were still there before they doubled the standard deduction, the Trump tax plan and all that. And some of them will figure out how to make that deduction like a lot bigger, a lot bigger than it's ever been before because they're going to take all of the expenses you no longer deduct in your itemization and they're going to back it through the home office deduction. And if you find one that does that, I would pick that person because they'll be able to do anything. That was the, 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 the latest thing that Mary did for me was figure out how to run that, that, that deduction, which is not, you know, I almost said run that scam, but it's not a scam. It's their own system back against them. So all you really should have to do to get them, and part of this is also you getting the most from your accountant. So it's not your accountant's job to say, go spend money this way, right? And then I can make it into a deduction. It's your job to say, here's all the ways that I think I need to spend money on my business and on my life that might be connected to my business. Is there anything I can do to make sure that it becomes a deduction? And that means good record keeping. Knowing where all the money went and why it went there and what you were thinking when you spent it. And then being able to say, well, I did this. Does this qualify as a deduction? And then you're looking for an accountant that has the balance of, I can make that work but will occasionally tell you no. You want somebody who's conservative enough to keep you from doing something stupid, 
but aggressive enough to maximize what you're looking for. And really, any CPA should be able to do that, but as you know, most people that should be able to do things can't. So you're looking for that person that has a little more of a pride in, I got this person every single deduction. And honestly, H&R Block, as far as like the corporate apparatus, like, you know, giant corporation type of uh, accountants, is not a bad place to start, especially for smaller entrepreneurs who are just getting their feet wet with that. And uh, the big thing then that you want to be doing is you want to be ready to have your taxes processed in January, not April. Because that gives you some time to work within an office and, and, and you know, uh, and figure things out. Or, you know, look for a local person. But most really good accountants who are kind of independent operators are looking for people who are full-time business people to do taxes with if they're going to get that aggressive. This all takes time. And by the way, all that time's not free. Our tax bill is higher. Like the average person that walks into H&R Block, they pay 50 bucks or something like that, you know. Um, we pay, you know, several hundred dollars or more. I think last year our, all of our filing stuff together was like 600 bucks. But when that $600 in expenditures, not only is it deductible in the next year's tax year, but also puts thousands of dollars in your pocket, it's money well spent. So that's how you have to think about this. But no, I'm, I've had a lot of people ask this, can I use your accountant? I, unless she goes into a private practice, I would, I would highly doubt it. And then I would say, unless you're in like North Texas, probably not as well. All right, next up, let's talk about Great Reset. Hello, Jack. I have a question for you. I was wondering if you heard about the World Economic Forum plan for the global reset coming next year. If you look up images of this, you will see a spherical blueprint plan. On the outer spokes, you will see such things as global government, Internet government, taxations, and the... Fourth Industrial Revolution, to name a few subjects on their plan. They said this is not optional and all countries must participate, whether they want to or not. Is this a tinfoiled hat conspiracy theories, or should we be concerned about this in the next two to three years? Thank you. Okay, so we actually just covered this in depth in episode 2775. That was on uh, 17th of November for around two weeks ago. And I went into it really deep. So I, I don't want to really go into it that deep. And I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes today for anybody who wants to uh, to dig into more about what the Great Reset is and, and how it's going to go. What I want to come out with this, though, is a little bit of an understanding about what they want versus what they get. And this is what I was talking about with conspiracy theorists. So this is this is not 100% not a conspiracy theory, the Great Reset. In the episode I'm talking about, again, 2775, what I pointed out, the difference between like, the Great Reset and the New World Order is the New World Order is a name that people on the outside observing a behavior came up with to describe the behavior. So the New World Order was about all of these oligarchs, all of these bankers, all of these 
rich people, all of these government and non-government organizations trying to structure the world into a new way in which the world is ordered, so the new world order. And then it became almost like because the word got the phrase got used so much, like there was a place like NWO headquarters and people walk around with a new world order ring or whatever. And I, again, I, I said that I don't like using the term R here because I'm not in part of the R, but it's the best way I can describe it. New World Order is our term for them. Okay? Great reset to drive home how not a conspiracy theory this is, is their word for what they want to do. It wasn't like, hey, we all got together and said, hey, these assholes are trying to do the Great Reset. I know, let's call it that. No, this is literally their plan for the world. Now, here's the thing. In spite of the fact that there's a lot of shitbags in the United States government, people still do operate under their own self-interest. And just because the World Economic Forum wants this, doesn't mean that they're going to get all of what that they want. And you say, it's not going to be optional. What's not going to be optional? What's not going to be optional? See, I think the problem is that this is not understood at the level of insidious nature it has, and therefore it's seen as more insidious than it is. And, and this is what I mean with conspiracy theories. This is the common thing conspiracy theorists do. They always assign a hyper level of competence to the people behind the conspiracy that they generally do not have. Right, so it, 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 it's the, the the things that that entity or that individual or that group of people wants as though they have the power to one day flip a switch and it's all there. That's how they act. Or when it's a conspiracy that's hidden, that they have the ability to hide something when twenty thousand people know about it and get all twenty thousand people to not talk about it. Like we didn't really land on the moon, man. Right? See, the only way you get that we didn't land on the moon actually being true is a level of hyper-competence that does not exist within the entities that supposedly pulled it off. So the hyper-competence can be used to completely destroy something that doesn't make any sense, but it can also kind of pollute something that does. And I think some of that's starting to happen with the Great Reset because the conspiracy people finally have something that you can't dispute at all. This is not a matter of opinion. It's not subject to whether or not you believe it or not. Right? It's not about what you think or what you believe. This is. This is. Their goal is to do away with the concept of property for you, but not for them. Basically, if you don't own things, then you have to lease or rent them. And if you lease or rent something, you lease or rent it from whom? The owner, them. You'll own nothing, but you'll be happy. That's not some shit that some crazy group of people came. Well, it is. It is some shit some crazy group of people came up with. But they're the crazy group of people who are in charge of a lot of the world's economics. They want you to own nothing, have no privacy, and be happy with that. So, again, twenty-seven seventy-five gives you a lot of the ways to use resistance through adaptation during the Great Reset because this is a tsunami wave coming at you. You have to learn to surf it. You can't fight it. You can no more stop the Great Reset than you can stop the wave. But you can no more predict exactly what it looks like than you can predict exactly what the wave looks like. 
How far inshore it will go? Will it go as far inshore everywhere as it does here? How will it manifest itself? How will people react to it? Will people evacuate? Will they obey the evacuation order or will they ignore it? Will people that are told to evacuate not evacuate but not need to evacuate because their land was actually higher than you thought it was? You don't know, right? I mean, that's how you have to start looking at this thing to understand what you're dealing with. A good traveler has no fixed plans and is not intent on arriving. So there's a lot of things these people want to do. So what you, what you need to do to be able to adapt to this is to start breaking down the individual things that they wish to do and say, what can I do now to have the most number of options if they succeed in doing what they're trying to do? So let's take digitizing the currency to the point that it might as well be a one-world currency. So even if you have U.S. dollars, euros, right, Australian dollars, etc., all as individual currencies, and even if they float in their own value, if they all have a common genesis in the global banks, and the global banks are actually controlling them all, they might as well be a global currency, right? So what does a global currency mean? It means the eventual death of cash, right? Now, I don't think they can kill cash tomorrow, but they can kill cash, Eventually, okay. so there's, then how do I deal with that? Well, one way I might deal with that is form, figure out another way that I can accept payment other than cash that's not in their system. Because even though cash comes from their system, it's really not in their system. You give me a $20 bill, okay? How do they know? They don't. They don't. But that bill is far more traceable than... $20 worth of R. The bill has a serial number. bill came from somewhere. Went from somewhere else. DNA on it. Okay? Right? So moving to crypto would be one way to counter that. Having some reserves in gold and silver would be another way to counter that. But if part of your plan is if things get bad enough, I might have to leave this country, it's hard to leave with your silver and gold. It's easy to leave with a brain wallet. Crypto would address that. But then you have to think, like, well, what is what is the overriding goal? What are some of the other aspects here? Well, they want us to eat less meat. They want us to have less things. So if we have a million dollars worth of Bitcoin or a million dollars worth of cash or a million dollars worth of gold and we're sitting on a desert island, do any of them really help us? What would we need on a desert island? Fresh water. Just can't drink the ocean water, or some way to turn the ocean water into drinkable water, and food, and shelter. So we need to address that, and that's how you have to go through this. How can you make yourself as self-sufficient and self-reliant as possible, and how do you increase the size of your network where you can rely on each other and create what I called in one of my episodes neutral zones and people said how can i look these neutral zones up you can't look them up they don't exist yet that's not what i'm saying i'm not saying that they agreed we'll leave these places alone i'm saying there are places that are largely ungovernable now and they will probably be ungovernable then not a hundred percent but to a large degree how the hell are you going to govern a guy with 40 acres in the middle of nebraska and tell him what to do with it when there's 800,000 people like that who all want to tell you to go screw, who all have the ability to feed themselves. No, you focus on 
the millions of sheep that live in the places that you most want to control, i.e. the major cities and the surrounding Beltway suburbs. And you push as many people into them as possible, so what do we do to that? We get out, and you just keep working it that way. Look at everything that they want to do and say, how do I create options other than this thing without destroying my life? And how do I do it in such a way that if they succeed in everything, I do as well as possible, but if they fail in things, I didn't take unnecessary risks? How do I create a life that's better living, a life that I can live better if times get tough, or even if they don't? In other words, you do what we've been teaching from the very beginning, since 2008. Why do you think I've been putting it that way since then? Because this was always the plan. We have a new name for it now that they came up with for it themselves. I'm very happy about it, actually. I'm not happy about the plan, but the plan was already there. I'm happy that they named it, and they're talking about it publicly so that when I talk about it, I don't sound like a lunatic anymore. And if you think I sound like a lunatic when I talk about the Great Reset, I want you to go get the cover of Time Magazine. It says it's time for the Great Reset, and stop calling me a lunatic and look at reality. Okay, I want you to go to the World Economic Forum and look at their plans for you in the Great Reset. There is no way that anybody at this point can say with a straight face, unless they're a complete idiot, that this isn't happening, this isn't a thing, and this isn't a plan. But the belief that because it's what they want, it will be mandatory and they will make it happen. Bullshit. What I said in 2775 is my grandfather used to say, shit in one hand. Hope in the other and see which one fills up first. And that's a lot of what these people want. They will get a lot of it. They're not getting all of it. In fact, one way that tyrants operate at this level, do you understand? This is, this is not tin pot tyrant. This isn't even like Hitler level tyrant. This isn't Stalin level tyrant of a single country. This is economic and social tyranny at a global, technocratic, and oligarch level. And one way you sell that is you say, I want all this shit this way. And anything that's not quite that bad is seen as not quite that bad and more readily accepted. So whatever they say they're going for, they already know they're going to get less than that. And what you have to figure out is how do you make sure they get less than that from you in the most defensible way possible? So get out of the cities, get into cryptocurrency, have some silver and gold, be a good prepper, put your life in order, build your network, engage in counter-economics. Be the antithesis of everything that they want other people to conform to. And you know what that makes you? Valuable. That makes you valuable. The future belongs to the entrepreneur and the landholder. And the landholder outside of these highly regulated areas. That is going to be the place where you can live your best life. So hopefully that's helpful. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I uh, want to remind you guys one of the ways you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do are do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T S P A Z, tspaz.com. Today I have, you know, yesterday I had like electronics and stuff, things that make good gifts and, and gadgets and stuff like that. Today I have more practical prepper item for growing your own food. The General Hydroponics Rapid Rooter Grow Plugs, which are the easy button when it comes to plant propagation, starting and growing plants out in hydroponic, aquaponic systems, etc. Uh, they're on sale. 
for 30% off. And it just so happens the two-inch CC Garden neck cups, which are the ones that you know you buy those and unless you step on them or something, you use them over and over and over again. They last for years. Uh, they're on sale for 31% off. So both of them are on sale at the same time. So the item of the day is the Rapid Rooter Grow Plugs. Uh, but, uh, again, the uh, neck cups are available as well. And if you look at the pictures in my write-up of some tomato plants I started last year, you can see the roots that you can create in a system like this using these. And those plants were planted out into soil. So even though this is designed more for the hydro-aquaponics world, uh, they are great for starting plants and putting into soil. In addition to the fact that they go great in the two-inch net cups, something else they go great into, regular standard plastic plant starting six-packs. They fit in there like a glove. And I fill up those things and I throw them in my flood tray in my seed starting system with my uh, aquaponics, hydroponics stuff, and I make as many plants as I want. Each tray can make me, I think, it's like 144 plants at a run. And uh, it's, again, it's the thing. I know people say, well, I use Rockwell or whatever. Well, go ahead. You can use Rockwell. You can use Airstone. You can use any other media you want to. If you want something that's going to work, you want to use these. And if you're using them in hydro, aquaponics, and stuff like that, where you know you finish, you're growing mostly greens and stuff. I've used some four or five times now. So you, you cut the plant out and you kind of let it dry out a little bit, hit it with a little bit of peroxide, drop it back in and use it again. And that makes them really affordable. When they're 30% off, they're really affordable. Uh, last but not least, remember it, the, the number one way that I pay the bills around here is through the Member Support Brigade. And if you want to know more about that, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. And I do take cryptocurrency. And if you want to use a cryptocurrency you don't see listed on that page, just email me. Fill out the form and then don't pay. Email me and say, Jack, I want to pay with fill in the blank, and I will send you an address, and you can pay me that way. There's almost no cryptocurrency I'll say no to. Uh, maybe I wouldn't take Dogecoin. But I'll take Dogecoin, sure. Nobody's ever tried to pay in like 10 years with it, but I'll take just about any cryptocurrency uh, out there if uh, you want to pay for MSB in it. With that, let's wrap things up with our song of the day today. And these are all songs that are uh, from 2020 and influenced by our lives in 2020. This one's by Jordan Davis, and it's called Church in a Chevy. And I know what you're thinking. It's probably about going to church in a parking lot and experiencing church and fellowship like a drive-in theater. It's exactly what it was supposed to be. That's what it was supposed to be. And Jordan and some fellow songwriters were trying to write this song. They came up with a few lines. They slept on it, and they just it just didn't come that way. And what it's really about is getting out and driving and being in your truck and being all alone. And having that moment of communion with God. And I think that works for just about anybody. And this is written clearly from a Christian perspective. But as a deist, I understand this experience as well. And I think just about anybody that would call themselves in any vein spiritual would understand this experience. And I think it's something that many of us have had to find for ourselves in different ways in the environment that we find ourselves in 2020. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. I woke up today and the world felt heavy, so I grabbed my keys and I went for a drive. 
Followed some county road wherever it led me past the fell on the porch in a Texaco sign. Crossed a bridge running over a creek. Miles of fields far as I could see. And there wasn't no steeple, wasn't no people, wasn't no pews. But right there at a little past two. I went to church in a Chevy on a two-lane on the side of the road. Sun coming up, cutting through the loud oaks. Wind through the windows like a whisper on a breeze. Out there in the quiet, heard him talking to me. Amazing grace came flooding through the windshield. Felt some broken parts of me start to heal. My lost kid didn't find no one else around. Middle of nowhere, dirt down with the church in a Chevy. I soaked it up and lost track of time. Started laying all my worries down. Just some pavement and some faded white lines, but that highway felt like holy ground. And there wasn't no preacher, wasn't no choir, wasn't no words, but was the best sermon I've ever heard. I went to church in a Chevy on a two-lane on the side of the road. Sun coming up, cutting through the loud oaks. Wind through the windows like a whisper on the breeze. Out there in the quiet, heard him talking to me. Amazing grace came flooding through the windshield. Felt some broken parts of me start to heal. My lost kid didn't find no one else around. Middle of nowhere, dirt down to church in a Chevy. Thank、you